No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. came across the Rural Development Network, or RDN, when I started the podcast in 2021. And I signed up for its newsletter, following its expansion from a mainly rural Western Canadian focus to now serving all corners of rural and remote Canada. It was in one of those newsletters late last year that I learned about RDN's Work Integrated Learning Program for rural organizations and businesses. The program matches you with students looking for work experience, and this is at no cost to you or the organization. RDN has a number of programs tackling numerous issues facing rural Canadian communities. So I spoke with the CEO, Deanne Bernard, and the project manager for the Work Integrated Learning Program, Daniela Seiferling. Deanne has been a driving force in rural Alberta for nearly three decades. She's worked with the government of Alberta's Ministry of Agriculture, the Alberta Operation of Integrated Crop Management Services, and Alberta Innovates. In 2004, Deanne joined the Agricultural Research and Extension Council of Alberta as Executive Director, a position she held until she joined the Rural Development Network in 2009. Daniela Seiferling holds a Bachelor of Arts with distinction in Anthropology and Classical Studies from the University of Alberta. She has over a decade of experience in the nonprofit sector. Prior to joining RDN, Daniela worked as Senior Coordinator with Volunteer Alberta. 
As the lead of the Provincial Volunteers Center Network and Membership, she championed volunteerism and lifelong learning as an essential component of resilient communities. What is the history of the Rural Development Network and, and how did it come to be the entity that it is today? The Alberta Rural Development Network, because that's what we used to be called, was started in 2009 by the Alberta public post-secondary sector. So um, I always like to say it's the one and only time they all voluntarily came together to work on a project. So they created the uh, Alberta Rural Development Network to connect themselves to each other better, but mostly to connect themselves to rural communities so they could better understand what the rural issues were, that researchers could work with rural communities to work on those problems. And we had some money to give away we were supposed to be a three-year project, um, but when, you know, after we did almost 200 projects and events and different things, um, a subsection of that initial membership, they decided that, you know, they'd like to see us stick around and see what else we could do. So we started to look, you know, where were we having the most impact because that initial approach was kind of a shotgun. We were doing anything and everything that people had identified. Um, and we started to see that we were having the most impact um, working with vulnerable populations in rural communities, um, working on municipal sustainability. So how do we help our rural communities not just survive, but thrive? And then also with some workforce development, because of course, you know, people aren't going to stay in rural communities if there are no jobs. So we started doing that, you know, and it was, it was a bit of a struggle, but very much up and down. Um, and then it, we reinvented ourselves again and started looking at ways of diversifying our revenue. So yes, we get some project-based grants, but we also do some fee-for-service work and we put on events and different things and we've really grown. And then of course, COVID hit. It actually ended up presenting a really exciting opportunity for us because prior to that, of course, people wanted to meet you in person and you needed to go to a rural community that you were gonna work with in person and that kind of limited our ability. But then people started to realize we could meet virtually and we didn't have to meet in person. And then people started asking in Ontario and BC, how can we work with you? But there was always that question of, well, why would we work with the Alberta Rural Development Network in another province? So in 2020, we rebranded. We dropped the Alberta. So now we're the Rural Development Network and we really grew. So we went from about 15 staff back then to almost 50. Um, and we have staff in multiple provinces. We work in almost every province and territory. Um, and it's been so, so exciting because we've really been able to collaborate across the country, develop new relationships, work with people we never imagined possible and really share ideas across the whole country because rural communities, whether they're in the Maritimes, in the prairies, in the north, they have a lot in common and they can learn from each other. So it's been a really exciting trip. And, you know, one of the new projects we started was work integrated learning. Okay. And so that leads very nicely into Daniela's, I would say, realm. Do you want to talk uh, about that history or how that's evolved, Daniela? I know that I was brought in probably after the initial planning phase had kind of been done. So 
I was essentially building the plane as we were flying it and kind of learning how to to meet the goals. So the original goals of the program were facilitating 750 placements, raising awareness of what work integrated learning was and its benefits for rural employers, and then hosting a project showcase at the end of that. So we didn't really have a plan for how we were going to do that. I just came in and was like, all right, we've got these goals. Let's see how we can achieve them. And it was a lot of innovation and learning as we went. But similar to what Deanne said, COVID-19 really shifted how education, including work-integrated learning, was delivered. So we noticed that things were happening more in virtual spaces that included learning and the way that people were doing their projects and connecting with employers. So we saw an opportunity to bring that experiential learning to rural and remote communities that maybe were traditionally underserved because students were often seeking more in-person opportunities. So the local post-secondary institution primarily worked with larger enterprises and urban centers or urban adjacent spaces, and we're not really connecting beyond those geographic regions. And then we noticed that our post-secondary institutions also identified that their networks were often tapped. So they were looking for ways to expand their reach beyond that traditional group of employers and continue to strengthen their relationships with employers in rural and remote communities. So that's where we kind of came into the to the equation and we essentially work as an extension of their work integrated learning departments. So we connect with employers, we learn what opportunities they're uh, offering at individual institutions and how the employer's projects are the best fit for a given post-secondary partner. So we invite often our employers to connect with us, talk about their project ideas. We help you kind of figure out what may be the best student talent to fit that, that skill gap or what it is that they're looking for, and then connect you directly uh, with the post-secondary partners. And we're also in the process of developing our own matching platform to kind of connect people into into that space. So if employers are interested in creating a project, we just invite you to do that initial kind of conversation with us, and then we'll help connect you to the post-secondary network and find the best fit for your role. Okay, this is super exciting. And, and full disclosure, I found out about your work integrated uh, learning program, and I was so shocked that, I mean, I could access it in Ontario and you know my little community I just want to amplify this like a thousand times because all I hear in, in rural Ontario where I am is people looking for staff, right? And, and what a great way to bring a learning opportunity to a student and also for the employer to learn from the student. To me, it's about, it's, it's more about the student getting something out of it. Of course, you want to show the value to the employer, but it is about the student's experience. And, and I think that it's so valuable what you're offering there. I read your mission and values, and one of it is filling gaps so there's no duplication. So what does that look like? And, and how do you and how do you navigate that really? I mean, on a national level, that's got to be really challenging. So how do you do that? First, in my excitement to be here and answer your first question, I didn't acknowledge that Daniela and I are both joining you from Treaty 6 territory in the Métis Nation Region 4, here from Edmonton, also known as Amiskwetsi-Waskagan. So I apologize for forgetting that. But how do we identify gaps? Well, we generally speaking, we let communities and champions come to us. So we're trying, we're not trying to tell 
people in rural communities what the issues are. We're waiting for them to come to us. And, and that might be a community-based organization, a municipality, um, some kind of other group serving rural communities. And we try to facilitate what they want to do rather than going in and trying to say, well, you should do this or you should do that. We try to respond to what they're identifying as the needs. And and I mean, in some cases, we are doing quite a bit of the work, but mostly we're just trying to help them accomplish the goals that they need to accomplish within their abilities and within their communities. It's not about, oh, we have this problem and then RDN runs away and works on it and then comes back with a solution. Because that, that approach doesn't stick. You need the community to be involved, the important players to be taking the leading role, because otherwise change doesn't really happen. I love that you mentioned that. I think the more that I learn about Indigenous communities, the more I realize that they have it right, that coming together in perhaps a talking or wisdom circle, even if it's virtual, rather than a top-down hierarchy approach to solving problems is paramount and and the way of the future the way that you're you're speaking about it i i hear that that that's the approach that you take and so are there indigenous communities that you work with you know municipalities coming together with indigenous communities actually maybe the better question is what are some of the projects that you are working on that are maybe i don't want to say universal but but you're hearing the same thing across canada in rural communities well, one of the major issues that faces all rural communities, but actually especially Indigenous communities, is homelessness and a lack of affordable housing. So almost no matter where you go, it's an issue. And I'm sure you've experienced it, Shauna, in your own community, how prices have skyrocketed for, for housing, what little is actually available. Because, you know, the other thing about COVID is a lot of people decided, oh, I can move to a smaller community. And they sold their expensive home in Toronto or you know some other large center and we're able to buy up property in smaller communities and that's great we want people to come to smaller communities but we also need housing um, and, and I'm glad you brought up Indigenous because of course uh, a, a big part of rural Canada is Indigenous communities or our Indigenous communities um, and we wanted to work with them and, and it's a challenge and then we finally decided you know we needed to put our money where our mouth was so we hired an Indigenous liaison, and it has been one of the best investments we've ever made. Um, and it's resulted in us now having an entire Indigenous engagement team, which are all Indigenous people from different parts of Canada. And, and we've been very well received on that. So now Indigenous communities believe that we really want to work with them and um, some of the important uh, projects are things like data collection. You have to do data collection with the community and, and understand all the implications of that. They don't want people coming in and collecting data on them and running off and using it in ways that they don't know or support. But we desperately need that data if we're gonna be able to invest resources in solving problems. So that's one of our big new initiatives is um, indigenous led data collection that can then be used to bring the resources that are so desperately needed by those communities. And it goes for rural communities in general. P problems are hidden. There's not enough data. Therefore, it's easy for governments and funders to shrug their shoulders and say, well, we don't really know what the problem is. So how can we decide what to do about it? Yeah, I think uh, it's such 
a contentious issue in that I hear rural communities say, I don't have many diverse people in my community, uh, so I don't need to create programs. And so that kind of thinking and planning is about 10 years behind where they should be because there are lofty federal government targets for immigration and they're targeting specific areas. In I know rural Alberta has programs to help immigrants uh, become entrepreneurs, integrate into rural communities. And if you don't have the programs, infrastructure, and a basic awareness of the racism and white supremacy that exists in your community, you're not going to be a welcoming community. What are you finding in your, I would say, excavation and your conversations with rural communities when it comes to bringing new folks in? And you make a great point. And there are a lot of great um, examples of rural communities across Canada that have done an excellent job of welcoming newcomers. And newcomers come in droves. They are so diverse now. They're, they're more diverse than many of the large cities. But it's a barrier that needs to be overcome. And, and, and it's a bit of a chicken and the egg. Well, why would we have supports and services if we don't have any newcomers? But how are you going to attract newcomers if you don't have these supports and services? And if you don't ensure that your community is welcoming, even if they come, they won't stay. It's an actual whole program we have, uh, rural immigration, trying to help communities be more welcoming so that when newcomers come to Canada, they're not just choosing you know, the big five uh, cities where everybody tends to end up that they do and are able and feeling welcome to choose smaller communities. And ironically, diverse provincial governments across Canada um, and Alberta, you know, we don't generally agree with the feds, but everybody agrees that we need more rural immigration. So, you know, if, if everybody's agreeing on that, you know, it's got to be a good thing to do. And communities are absolutely desperate to bring in new investment, new talent, new skills. And, and then a really great way of doing that is to attract those newcomers. So we are trying to work with those communities to make sure that they can attract newcomers and that newcomers are aware of the opportunities because it's easy to be aware of what's available in Toronto, but, you know, not so easy to be available or know what's available in, you know, Gore Bay on Manitoulin Island. Communities have to be proactive. They need to come up with a marketing plan because why wouldn't people move to a bigger center where there's more culture and there's more people, perhaps even from their own family, more relatives, cultural food, uh, access. If somebody moves to where I live, they have a two-hour drive to Toronto to get their food that they're typically used to and, and want to provide for their family. Daniela, when it comes to newcomers, how does that play into your work integrated learning programs? How open are employers to new students, newcomer students? That's a great question, actually. I would say last year we had about 30% of our students were either international students, Indigenous, or um, visible minorities. So I would say you see a lot of employers engaging, but maybe not as much as we would like. We'd like that number to be higher. Uh, so we are actually looking at expanding our program into a different work integrated learning space, which kind of takes it outside of the realm of academia. And so I've partnered with our rural immigration team to look at experiential learning for new Canadians. 
So creating some of that skilled uh, opportunity so that they could get Canadian work experience, showcase their talents of what they've learned in their own home countries and bring that back uh, here when they move here. So I think there's opportunities and part of what we recognize is that some employers are obviously a little bit further behind. They maybe haven't had the resources to invest in professional development or training for their staff. So one component of that that program is actually bringing in that investment and personalized training so that they are prepared and ready to welcome newcomers and international students into their organization. So they'll get customized training and a toolkit at the end of that resource or at the end of that uh, program. Why do you both think this work is important? Of course, we believe that rural Canada is an absolutely vital contributor to all of Canada, whether it's economic or tourism, whatever you want to talk about it. We are an important part of Canada. And the actual truth is we cannot have everybody living in the cities. We need to have population living in the smaller communities, supporting agriculture, supporting forestry, supporting all the resource-based industries that are occurring in the rural communities. But do we really want everybody to live in, in the big cities? No. But we need to make sure that if you're living in a small community, you have access to similar supports and services that people can access in the large communities. We know it's not going to be the same. But there has to be some kind of parity. Uh, we can't have, you know, a two-tiered system of the haves and the have-nots living in rural communities because then no one's going to stay there. So we want to make sure that our communities, like I said earlier, are not just surviving, they're thriving, that they are a, a great place for people to choose to live, that not everyone has to live in the cities, and that we can work with them to make Canada even more vital. I mean, we have a huge country and we don't just don't want a bunch of empty spaces between our cities. So yeah, we think this work is absolutely critical. Depending on how you define it, a third of Canadians live in rural communities. They live outside the urban centers. So that's a lot of people and we want to support them. Daniela, what about the WELL program? Why do you think it's important work? I'm going to take it from a different perspective, and I'm going to go from the student perspective more so than the employers. So I am actually a graduate myself of work integrated learning, which is why this project is a passion for me. So I credit my experiences in high school and post-secondary for the reason why I am where I am. So it gave me the skills, it gave me the network, it gave me the experience to actually boost my resume tell people about different skill sets, interview better. So I was pretty much hired right after graduation, which is not something that happens very often nowadays. Uh, the competition is fierce. You are competing with other skilled students for all of the jobs. The job market was not necessarily as stable when I graduated. It's not stable now. So how do you set yourself apart from this larger pool of applicants. And I think work integrated learning is a great way to do that. And I will also credit it as not many people choose the nonprofit sector as a viable career path. Most graduates, you have debt, you've paid a lot to go to school. You're not really looking at a sector that does not necessarily pay the big bucks. But I had such a great experience working for my nonprofit organizations through experiential learning that I've barely left the sector other than a few stints in in government over the years but this is near and dear to my heart and I think you learn a lot about yourself and community development and that can translate into both a career 
as well as your personal and professional life. What do you find the most frustrating and and what do you find the biggest barriers are for you? Uh, I'll ask Deanne first. The lack of resources in rural communities. Um, Lots of big problems are being tackled by people trying to do it off the corner of their desk. So it's everything tends to be done in silos. It's really hard for communities to approach things in a more holistic way, attracting newcomers. Um, and needing to retain your population. But people need an affordable and appropriate place to live. And then there's homelessness, and then there's the lack of resources. And it should be approached in a holistic way, but it's so hard. I liken it to when we first started working on building affordable housing, housing, the reason we did is because all these communities identified that they were really struggling and they didn't even know how to do it. And we were told, oh, it's almost impossible to build affordable housing in rural communities unless it's for seniors. So we said, okay, this is a problem because, you know, a big city will have a whole team of people working on affordable housing and they're struggling to deal with getting affordable housing built. So how is somebody doing it off the corner of their desk going to accomplish it in a rural community? So first of all, like I said, it's a lack of resources, but the lack of ability to you know, look at the bigger picture and take that more holistic approach and making sure that you're working on everything because, you know, people tend to focus on, say, economic development. But I look at that as a three-legged stool. So you can work on economic development, but what about social development? Because if you attract newcomers and people and businesses and investment, all those people need services, whether they're public services like uh, schools and healthcare and all that kind of stuff, or whether they're private services like entertainment and shops and groceries and services, personal services. And how do you bring your family? And if you don't have those services, and then of course, there's the environmental leg, which is the place you live. You want to live in a nice community. You want to live in a good home that's appropriate to your needs. So you need all of those things. You can't just focus on one. And it's so hard for a small community to have the resources to look at the bigger picture and plan for the future and work on all those things together in the appropriate order and all that. It's 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 easy to just to throw up your hands and go, this is too much, right? Daniela, what do you find most frustrating about running the project that you are? Very similar to Deanne, I would say it's the lack of resources and capacity. So our employers are often small enterprises like yourself. They are one person or maybe less than five. So creating a project, connecting with the post-secondaries, going through that matching process can be quite tedious and quite labor intensive for, for smaller organizations. So trying to get them hooked into the will cycle at the time that it works for either the post-secondary or for the needs of their project can sometimes be a struggle. But I also think that's the greatest opportunity is because we're not restricted to necessarily one post-secondary institution, one cycle of will, or one type of will. We can engage in multiple different avenues. So I think it's both the barrier and the opportunity. Okay. And so what are your big priorities coming up into, or or things that you, you want to amplify in the next little bit, you know, spring going into summer, maybe? Tian? So in June, June 6th to 8th in Brantford, Ontario, we're hosting our Canadian Rural and Remote Housing and Homelessness Symposium. So we're hoping to bring people out to talk about those really important things. Um, and also, you know, trying to get more of this holistic approach 
and also a systems approach. For a long time, we've been trying to deal with the symptoms, you know, what what can we do to deal with these one-on-one issues, but, you know, we're trying to back it up a bit and look at the system as a whole. So, you know, how do we prevent the problems from even happening rather than just treating the symptoms? And so, for example, one of our big projects we're working on is called Shelter Pulse, and it's working with domestic violence women's shelters across Canada to help them all get on the same page with respect to policies. So we're doing the research, making sure they're very up-to-date, trauma-informed policies and practices that everyone can adopt. So they're not wasting their time each reinventing the wheel and coming up with their own policies um, to really make it standard across the country so that a client who comes in, whether they go to a shelter in Alberta or in the Northwest Territories or in Newfoundland, will have the same kind of experience. And they won't be re-traumatized and have an unexpected experience. And that staff know exactly what is the best practices to date. So that's what we want to do more of at the RDN is these things that are going to help multiple communities, multiple types of organizations save resources and build capacity and help get everyone on the same page. Daniela, what about you? What about your program? What's happening in the next little bit? Uh, So we have some pretty big goals again for this year. We're trying to facilitate 1,000 placements. So that's 1,000 students matched across Canada, uh, which is pretty crazy when you think we only have until August 31st. So that's seven months away now. But we are on track. I think we've matched about 300 so far. So moving slowly towards our goal. And then I think the other, similar to what Deanne said, is creating solutions Uh, for multiple communities and multiple post-secondaries. So one of the things that we're working on is a research project uh, to investigate best practices for creating will programs that benefit employers, students, and post-secondaries. So I think that will be our big, big summer project is researching that and creating a toolkit for our post-secondary partners. And then I think the other goal is looking at ways that we can expand will. So very similar to that uh, initiative we spoke about earlier with for newcomers is ways that we can take experiential learning outside of traditional post-secondary sectors. So we're looking at exploring opportunities for uh, secondary schools, so high schools across Canada, potentially uh, people who are newly retired or maybe re-entering the workforce or looking to switch jobs. So I think we're looking at ways we can expand it and exploring what it really means to think of experiential learning as something you do throughout your lifetime as opposed to your secondary education. Wow, that's a lot of exciting stuff. So how can folks get in touch? Say, you know, there's a small municipality listening, a a counselor, somebody sitting on a a municipal committee or a nonprofit in a a small area and, and looking to partner with you. How do they get hold of you? And also, um, what do you want to say to them? So they can visit ruraldevelopment.ca and we do have an, a you know, contact form or they can email info at ruraldevelopment.ca. And if they want to learn more about our conference, uh, which is the Canadian Rural and Remote Housing and Homelessness Conference, they can visit crrhh.ca. And Daniela, how can they access work integrated learning. And I guess I didn't really mention, is there a cost to anything? No, this program is free for employers currently. So 
all you have to do is reach out to us. We do have a database that we're in the process of building. So there should be a link on our website. If you know what your project is and you're ready to sign up, uh, you can just go to that registration form. And then if you want to meet with the Will team, similar to what you did, Shauna, reach out to us by email. So it's will at ruraldevelopment.ca, W-I-L at ruraldevelopment.ca. And we will set up a meeting uh, with you and kind of learn about what it is that you're looking for and help you flesh out the idea for your project. I think our team is all really approachable and really want to get to know you so we can make the best match for what it is that you're looking for. Yeah, most definitely. It was an amazing experience. Thank you both so much. I appreciate it. This was awesome. Thanks, Shauna. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 